Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thank you for tuning in. Hope your day is going well. Hope you're having a good week, enjoying the summer. I'm feeling bubbly. Uh, and the reason is I just finished this interview. I don't always record the intro right after the interview, but in this case I did. And just not only such a good vibe, but I feel like this information can make the world a better place. I can't always say that about information. It might be interesting, but is it transformative? And so I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, I I hope you tell others. That's what I want to do with this show. I also want to get to know you better. You've said this a few times, but email me, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you only want to dedicate five minutes, I'd love to send you a few questions slash survey to see how you engage with the show, but I'd love to hop on a Zoom call for 15, 20, 30 minutes with you if you're down. I'm doing that with a listener in one hour. I'm going to talk to somebody. So Chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. This week on the show, we are interviewing Christian Modsberg. And Christian is the author of the brand new book, Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. And in my opinion, this book is a little less about what you might think, which is distraction, social media, that it does cover that, but it's about how do we observe the world, observe phenomena, observe the things we enjoy in a different way that allows us to feel more human, feel more connected, uncover and learn more, and essentially understand our reality better. It also helps because when you understand the things that matter to you the most in a deeper way, your life changes. And I think you'll find that to be the case when you listen to this episode. Christian is co-founder of the consulting firm Red Associates. He writes, speaks, and teaches on the practical application of the human sciences. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Atlantic Financial Times, etc. He's written multiple books. He is a full-time professor of applied humanities at the New School for Social Research in New York, senior fellow at the Health and Global Policy Institute in Tokyo, Japan, and an overall brilliant and nice guy. Let's get into it. An interview I really enjoyed with Christian Madsberg on his new book, Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. Enjoy. Christian, we were just talking about it. It's been 10 years ago. You know, know. 10 years since we had you on. Welcome back. Thank you. I've heard you made some podcasts in between. A couple, just a few. What are some of the most impactful or memorable things that have happened to you since the 10 years we we last talked? I, oh, I had three children. I wrote a couple of books. I sold my company. 
um, I started a couple of other new ones. Wow. You just you made me back, feel... I'm, there was a lot to it, actually, if you think about those 10 years. <laughs> you just made me feel pretty miserable about the last 10 years of my life. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I actually, uh, you said three children? Yeah, well, one was a little earlier, but yeah, I had two. Okay. I yeah. Had two. Yeah, I got uh, my third on the way. So we're, we're living at least the same similarities in that. In the last 10 years, what is your proudest moment hmm. outside of family? Because everybody feels like they're going to say family. So outside of that. I mean, I was really proud when I sold my company because it was a company made up by humanities majors and anthropologists that everybody says are difficult to hire or difficult to get you know, give jobs. But we showed, I think, that the through showing it in the market that you could do something really valuable um, and that that group was a very valuable group of people. So it was it was good for me to say that not only the things we did in the company were, I think, helpful and and uh, innovative, but also the market showed it. It wasn't there's no discussion then. So I was kind of proud of that. Yeah. Which company was this? It was called Red Associates. It is called Red Associates. Okay, so you don't you don't own it anymore, but you're still no. part of it. Not really. No. No. Okay. No, not really. Okay. Uh, but it's still a great, great firm and does really interesting things at the highest level. So, it's a uh, it's a fun group. It's consulting based on observing human behavior or something along those lines. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So trying to understand groups of people, how they act and think and move around in the world. Um, that was sort of the, that's the idea. And then doing that for hospital systems or automakers or uh, governments. So the leadership teams and the sort of the top of those firms, the boards, help them understand what's happening to humans. And, you know, generally what on earth is happening in our culture. Do you feel like your new book here is almost a direct line to that organization. I mean, it's almost exactly what you all did in red is what you're writing about here. In, in a way. Yes. So there's sort of two steps between it. One is I I'm a professional observer. It's my thing. And I'm, uh, I made a living out of it. And then when different universities saw that this is working, it seems like what you're doing is helpful and successful. Then the question was, can you teach it? Like, is it possible to take whatever it is you're doing by observing humans in their context around the world in a sophisticated and organized way? Is it possible to teach that at a graduate school level? And then I went to teach it at the new school in Manhattan, where I ran a class called human observation. And that class ended up being this sort of iconic thing that kids, the kids wanted to go through um, and enjoyed being part of. And then when I thought, okay, that class seemed to work, I should write a book about that. So, that, so the book is basically that class. And the class is basically my 25-year experience as an observer. So there you it, go. Yeah. So in a way, yeah. If you were to try to narrow it down to one thing what is it that you do different when it comes to observations than the average person um i in the book i call it look don't think so it is instead of having opinions about things judging things thinking you know how the world works you record you look you um describe before you have opinions so there's this state you can get into as a, as a human, where you observe how other people look. You look how other people look, you think about what other people think. You try to understand what's their world like. And you can do that in a kind of a pure way. You can, you can, you can spend time trying to understand, observe people observing, basically. So there's a level above normal observation, which is, the observation about how this whole thing works. And I think that's what I tried to offer tools for um, in the book and what I've done my whole life, really. As you were saying that, I realized, I, I like to think I'm pretty good at quote unquote reading other people, sensing other people. 
But I realized that the way I do that is through a lifetime of experiences that I'm running these observations through to try to make assumptions and hope that they're right, which I feel like is completely at odds at what you're discussing, which is try to observe without doing all of that. Is that true? As much as you can. It's impossible for humans not to have a level of assumptions. And we invest that. We're not like, we're not looking at other people like you could look at bacteria or planets or something like that, where you can have a view from nowhere. Because in order to understand people, you have to involve your own world and your own experience and emotion. But you could try to do it as pure as you can. And you can try to arrest your own assumption, your own bias, your own experience as much as you can in order to just describe. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a state you can get into that um, we all do all the time, but you can be better at it and you can practice it. Um, so so you, what you're doing is what everybody's doing all the time. Um, but there is this sort of second order uh, or meta skill that you also have, I'm sure, um, but that you can also practice just like going to the gym or something. Mm. You, you said this phrase, you said essentially observe and just describe. And I think that is a great explanation of it. My challenge is what do we do with that description? So say I'm observing somebody and I'm just describing, looks like they're feeling tense here or they look... They're showing me in their shoulders that they're tense and they're this and that. Don't I then have to make interpretations about what that means to provide any meaning to it? Yes, as a second step, as ah. a crucial second step. So separating those two is important because you did, otherwise you just end up repeating your own assumption and you see things through the filter of your experience and you learn very little. So I'm going to make an assumption here. Most of the time, we combine observation and meaning into one, and that is where we run into problems. But if we do those two things, but we just separate them, that's where we might be able to observe better. The, the best we can. Yeah. The best we can. So, so an example could be, I asked one of my students, one of my students was interested in what's it like to be seen? Like being seen by, a, by a, another person, by your teacher? something like that, that somebody sees you. And we said, like, how could we observe people being seen? Like, observe it happening. And we went to a jazz club in Manhattan and basically observed a jam session. So here are extremely skilled musicians, some of them young, some of them old. And they, are, of course, have a pattern. They have the history of jazz. They have chords and rhythm structures and so on. But if somebody comes in with their guitar and they don't know that person, how does that person, how, what is it like to be seen as a musician then? And what we did, all we did was instead of being immersed in the music, instead of being um, sort of doing what normal people would do when they come to a jazz club, we would basically just observe the dynamic between the musicians and how people would, basically it's brutal. It's a, it's a terrifying situation because they're so good. Everybody's so good at what they're doing. So if a new drummer comes in, the amount of mistakes that drummer needs to make in order to not be seen, uh, or if somebody does something in particular, you could see the others react with a sort of a gasp because somebody did something really cool and, you know, um, did a chord that was unusual but fit in or something like that. So, so by just recording the dynamics between them and around the phenomenon of being seen, uh, you can start seeing this whole pattern of behavior and all, this whole emotional landscape that happens when you are a jazz musician. And it says something more general about what it's like as a human to be seen and how we could see each other. Uh, so so it's, it's, that, it's the idea that you get into this stance of description that helps when you then later analyze, judge, have all kinds of opinions about it. But there's this sort of space you can, you can capture that's really hard, but you can capture it where, where you just look. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. 
At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com smart. I was just thinking how difficult that would be. So I have this assumption, I require more sleep than I feel like a lot of people. And my reasoning for that is because I feel like I'm thinking all the time. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just part of my personality. And so I'm using up these energy components, right? These calories and whatnot, and I need to replenish them. I could imagine the same being true for you if you feel like observing at that level which is conscious, and I think so much of what we observe is subconscious or unconscious, then it just could be tiring. Is that the case at all? Yeah, it is definitely. And it's it's not, it is natural in a sense, but it's unnatural to stay in that situation too long. Um, but yeah, it's definitely tiresome. I've, I've tried, especially if it's a culture that I don't know so well, um, being in it for, you know, meeting someone, following them a whole day, you're just smashed in the evening. Okay. Um, because it's so, um, there's so much intent in the way you're doing things. Um, by the way, I think people need more sleep than they get in general. And I, you know, I've seen, I've talked to some of the most successful people in the world over the years and, and they say, I, I can ask, I can maybe work three hours a day, like real work. The rest, yes. the rest is just getting coffee and meeting people and moving things around. The actual, I don't think many people can do more than three hours of, of actual work. Um, somebody less. I, I think that's really actually an important, although somewhat side conversation, an important thing. I was thinking about this the other yesterday. I had one important task to get done. And it took almost all day, but that was because I had to refuel in between deep thought. And then when I did this thing, I was exhausted. For me personally, I judge that. And I think a lot of people do judge and say, why couldn't I do it faster? Why was this so tiring? Why? But maybe it's that if everybody's doing that, but nobody wants to admit it. Exactly. And, and when you get people like really successful people that can allow themselves to admit it, and you, and you talk to them for a little while and they open up, they say, well, actually, I only get started at one. I mean, the rest is just spinning wheels. And then I have this moment and that's, that's all I need. Um, so I, th I think we're over, if you think you can be, do knowledge work and be productive for 10 hours a day, you're probably kidding yourself. You heard it here first, folks, and I, I completely agree. I want to dig in. There were some parts of your book that really jumped out to me and they fit in this conversation we're already having. And the book is called Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. You say that learning to see our reality as it is, as it actually exists, is a skill that will change your life. How do you believe it does that? I've seen it. So in around maybe 2017, 2018, I started noticing something with my students because I was teaching this class uh, every year. And they started saying they felt they were languishing. They felt that they were distracted. They felt that they didn't really get much done compared to what they wanted. Um, and it was not a new thing, but it was more than I'd seen before. And I think what we ended up 
diagnosing it as. Diagnosing is a medical term, but what we ended up thinking it was, was abstraction. That if you lead a life that where everything is abstract, you know, you lead a life through numbers or through a screen or something like that, you are through abstract opinions about the world. You don't experience the world directly. It's as if you live with a window between you and the world. And the technique of observation that I'm trying to describe in this book gets you back into a direct relationship to the world. So you can uh, see actually what people are doing rather than thinking you already know and just judging them based on that. It's so easy to get in this, uh, into this sort of abstract relationship to the world if you already have opinions about everything. And a lot of it, a lot of the languishing they felt, I think, came from too much opinion, too many things they already knew, and being taught that having opinions and making arguments is the core of, you know, academic skill or intellectual skill. And I don't think it is. I think observation comes before that. So, and then I could see them transform. I could see them relate to the world in a different way, much more fresh in their relationship to the world. And they still, you know, write me every week, people that I taught, you know, eight, 10 years ago, um, saying, we use it every day. Uh, this, this sort of refreshing of the attitude towards the world. So I think it, it makes them feel better. Like, I think it's just healthy to have a, a more direct relationship to the world than an opinion-based or theory-based. Why do you think it makes us feel better? They say that they feel connected again. So imagine you live in a city and you just drone through the city, you do the things you do, and you never stop and just describe what's going on. You sit on the town square you know, I live on, I live um, near Union Square in Manhattan, and I often sit down and just write down what's happening with the chess players, like the dynamics of it, who comes, who goes, how many times they need to lose before they, before they leave again, how crushingly good the the people playing there are. Like if you just describe what's going on, you start feeling connected to the place. Um, you start feeling connected to it again. I could see the worst place I've seen was actually with executives. So, you know, an executive in an automaker firm, let's say a car company, they're so far away from people using cars in normal ways. And that means that everything in their world becomes abstract. It's market shares and investment criteria and all kinds of abstract things that you need. But if it's all you have, if you have no connection to normal people using vehicles in their lives for helpful and important things on a normal Tuesday, if you have no relationship to that direct experience, then all of it becomes sort of a mush of abstraction. And I've seen executives when I've taken them and done the things I did with, I just told you about with the chess players on, U on Union Square. If you, if, you, if you take an executive and you give him a pair of jeans and go to a normal place in Virginia, like a place in Virginia where people buy their cars, you know, old uh, and figure out what's their life like and what role does the vehicles have in their lives. Then suddenly the world snaps into place and becomes much more colorful and rich because it's real rather than abstract. So there's something really satisfying and healthy about having that relationship to the world. I was just having a conversation about AI and, and this idea of the matrix. And I have this theory, you know, I think a lot of people fear that when AI gets good enough, we will turn into the matrix, right? Literally the movie where we're just in a pod, you know, where we're harvested for our energy or something. And you can create a world that is so realistic that will appeal to the human mind. It doesn't need actual reality. It can just deal with the digital world, the metaverse, et cetera. And I have this theory that is we are more intelligent than that. Our body, maybe not our mind, but our soul, whatever you want to call it, is more intelligent than that, that it will always know that something is missing in the screen, in the messing with our minds in a way that is not actual reality. The reason I'm saying that is for some reason, what you just said strengthens that belief in me, which is just we can sense when we are not living 
in the world as we were meant to and not observing in that way and not feeling and sensing and being in that way. There's a lot of bogus hyperbole going on about AI right now. And some of it might end up be true, but in general, I'd be skeptical when AI engineers start philosophizing about the question, you know, the questions of reality and be too um, clear in their opinions because no one knows these things. So, but, but I'd say um, the body is part of our and core of our perceptual apparatus. Without our body, we can't see things in space. There is like so much less information available to be processed when all it is is us looking at a screen or having light projected into our eyes. Our bodies are a perceptual apparatus that gives us a clue about how our perception works in, the ge in general. So imagine you can either see reality as a set, as a data set right so color distance space shape you know um and so on and you and you can then see our our perception being just take in taking in through our perceptual apparatus our redness and our eardrums the the world as it is and then somehow it turns up as a meaningful place or you could say because we have bodies in space usually um, we know that world. We already know what that world is. So when you see a table and chairs and so on, you don't see, if you see a chair, you don't have to see all the data points of the chair and then connect it to a table. You, all you, what you see is dinner, right? And you see the whole social human world um, immediately. You don't have to process all the data points to do that. We need much, much less data than a machine does. So it's incredible that we, that anyone would say, would think that this meaningful, rich world we live in can somehow be reduced to the intake of data. Um, an example, actually a good example is notes. So if you take, if you hit on a piano, you hit a C on, on a, on a piano. And that is of course a, a, a sound wave. Um, and that sound wave hits your eardrum. But if that sound wave is in one chord that sounds classical, or the same sound wave in another chord that sounds jazzy, it's completely different experiences. One is in the world of classical, one is the world of jazz. And that means that the same input, the same sort of data input can be in completely different worlds that have very little to do with each other in terms of when, like classical music is usually seen as older than jazz. Jazz feels like a certain point in time. We have a whole human understanding of that. So that is so rich, so beautiful, that thinking that that will go away or is will be outcompeted, I think is, I, I don't think people have good reasons to do that. Yeah, I agree with you. And this is kind of furthering that thought. You mentioned a couple of things about why, you know, learning to see reality as it exists uh, can change our life. And in that discussion, you talked about how we often bring too many opinions to the table and we kind of feel we need to judge them to have an argument. And it reminds me of a guest we had on a long time ago. Uh, I think it was an ethics professor. And, and I've used this example a couple of times. He said, I don't believe we need to have opinions. And I remember hearing that going, well, that's weird. Like, why? He said, because when almost what you're saying, when you have them, you have to color everything through them. And I said, well, what about when you have to make a decision? He said, don't have opinions until you must make that decision. And it, it's fundamentally changed the way I go about life. I'm not a very opinionated person anyways, never have been, but it just furthered that belief. And I think you're talking about that when you have an opinion Oftentimes it's human nature to try to support that opinion. We don't like to be wrong. So this style of observation, if we can practice it, allows us to drop it. But that is also hard because we are predictive machines. So how do we balance that genetic want and need to predict and know with the ability to just observe? What I'm trying to offer is a technique to do that. Is a, is, a, is a way to get good at that. 
Uh, is it possible to do that all the time? Absolutely not. Um, you can even, if you think about it, the most basic way. If I, I live on, on 13th Street in Manhattan and I walk down the street normally, there I'll see cars and people and I would somehow, without thinking at all, just walking through, I can somehow find my way two blocks later where I need to pick something up, let's say. So we have this type of attention that is almost panoptic that where you're not paying attention to anything in particular, but you know what things are and you judge that's a fire truck, that's a school, you know, and so on. And we can somehow with, with very, very limited information, because we already know what they are, we can find our way through it. Now that's the normal everyday experience of attention. That's how we pay attention usually. Then there is another type of attention that everybody talks about and want more of, which you could call focus, right? So that is blurring out everything and focusing in on something particular. That could be the color of a fire truck, let's say, or it could be a particular person you see in the street or a dress you like or something like that. That's focus. That's the kind of attention we say to our children, you know, pay, pay attention. We want you to focus in on something. Those are the two types of attention we mostly talk about. There's a third type, and that third type I call hyper-reflection in the book. And it is paying attention to how people pay attention. So you look at how, do, how does all these other, how does this work? How does this, all these people know how to organize themselves so that the kids are at home and suddenly they are in school? Like, how did, how did that um, piece of logistics of people finding their way through their life knowing what schools are, knowing what streets are, knowing what kids are, where they are in their age and so on. How does all that work? And that's a type of attention that uh, is almost like a meta skill or a, um, or a second order type of attention. And that one is something you have to do. Like that's something you, you, you make a choice to do it in order to figure out how does this street work? Um, what is a school? You know, and ba fundamentally, how does all this happen? And um, and based on what are they doing? What they're doing? So, th so that's kind of an attitude of uh, description. Mm. Because if you start getting into the first type of attention, which is the panoptic type, you just drone through it, and you don't you don't see any of it. And most of the time, that's fine, but not in those situations. That's what I was going to say, and and I think this is where one of the clear delineations is is isn't it true that that is part of the human experience that it's actually a um it's actually a feature not a bug that we are able to observe kind of generally and and not have to think consciously you could even say i mean some people make the argument that when we are at our best that's what we do like if you see if you see a great basketball player or a great f soccer player and they and they and you look at them as they're playing masterfully. Uh, they're not paying attention to anything in particular. They just know the patterns of play with their bodies. It's not an intellectual process. They don't have language for it. That's why when you ask them after the match, what, how did you do that? And they they don't know because they were just completely immersed in that kind of panoptic type attention. So so some people would argue that. It is actually when humans are at their best is that in that situation. I'm not judging which is better or worse. It's just different types of attention. And the first type, the panoptic type of attention is a beautiful thing. It's extraordinary that we can do that. And that's why it's so fun to watch basketball. Okay. Give us a few scenarios or your favorite scenarios in which you think this type of observation that we're talking about is most helpful. When should we, in our minds, because we're all beginners at this now, click over and say, ooh, I'm going to do what Christian talks about now because it's going to benefit me somehow. Right. So I have sort of one trick in my bag, and it is coming out of a tra philosophical tradition called phenomenology, which is a German-French tradition from the 20th century. And the idea by, behind phenomenology is that there are phenomena in the world. There are social phenomena, like being seen, uh, or like playing chess, or winning, uh, or money, let's say. And I think all of us are 
relating to phenomena in our work life and our everyday life. So let's say you work in a bank and you help people invest their money. If you just do that as an abstract thing and you put money to different money managers or whatever these people do, uh, invest in stocks and invest in bonds and so on, then, then uh, you can do that. But you can also have a permanent sort of project with yourself. That is, what is money? Like, how does this thing work? It really is a big scheme in a sense, right? That we call this money. How does it work? But also, how, does, how do people relate to it? And how, do, how does the people I advise relate to it? And if you look at money, for instance, there are many types of money. There's not just money. There are many types. There's, there's fast money that you spend on um, groceries, let's say, that you d- just have a tra- tra- transactional relationship to. And then there's a different kind of money, which is your children's education money that has a very different experiential quality than fast money you spend on milk and butter. If it's for your children's education, it has a different texture to it. And so if you're if you're working in a bank and advising people like that, s- studying the phenomenon of money as it relates to the experiences of the people you uh, are helping and working with every day, that gives you sort of a whole other texture to it. So picking a phenomenon that's important to you, it could be money, it could be being seen, it could be um, um, it could be being informed about topics like the ones you're dealing with. Um, wh- what's the process and experience of dealing with those when it comes from books or podcasts or other things? If you follow that and you study that in the real world, like people doing it, not thinking about it, not people writing about it, but actual doing it, then you get a whole other relationship to it. So the trick is pick a phenomena and describe what's going on, what the structure of that phenomena is as as it's playing out in normal everyday life. That sounds really hard to do. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm relating it to my life as I do on this podcast. The only thing I kind of know, and I do learning and development, leadership development, and I do it because I love people. I want to help them live a better life through information, knowledge, behavior change. So I'm thinking, okay, this is need to get better observing people and what they want and what all that stuff. Right. Um, but understanding that phenomena, observing it, internalizing it, leveraging that knowledge to change my behavior seems like an almost impossible task. Yeah, I don't think it is. I don't know how to do it. I don't think I don't it know is. how to do I mean, I know that's what your book is about and that's where we're going. So, you know, we talked a little bit about observing from a descriptive standpoint. Let's start there. What are some key tips on how we can do that and make sure we're doing it in the in the way that is best? Right. Maybe I could tell a story to explain. So at some point I worked with an American, uh, large American company that made, that makes drinks for us. So they make carbonated drinks, sugar drinks, teas, all kinds of things. And we were thinking about making a big push into tea and coming from America, your opinion about tea or your assumptions about tea is that it's cold, probably peach flavored and very sweet. Um, where if you're from China, which is what, where, where we were interested in figuring out tea, because tea is from China, we went, I took the executives and I basically transplanted them into normal people doing normal things on a normal day in different places in China for a while. And one of the things they came back, they basically came back just descriptions, just what are they doing, how much are they drinking, uh, with whom, when, um, uh, what, what do they look like before? What do they look during? What do they look after? So basically just a description of the days of the people that they were spending time with, that we've sort of forcing them to spend time with. And then what they came back was lots of information about it. And then we looked at it and we, and one of the executives said, what really was different, what's really different here on all the observations we have is none of the people relate to tea as adding something. Where in America we add sugar, we add carbonation, we add all kinds of things to it in order to pick us up in a sense, right? To give us a jolt of sugar. 
but what they found in China was that tea removes. It's they drink it in order to remove stress, to remove uh, toxins in their body, to remove effects of food. So where Americans look at tea as adding, they look at tea as uh, as taking away things from bad things from your life. So a whole other way of thinking about tea. And then they started looking at America and looked at tea and said, well, this is something people need. They really, really need a vehicle with which they symbolically and practically can take away the things that they'd like to get rid of in their everyday life, they, which is the opposite of what they thought it was, right? So only through forcing them on a, you know, on a normal Tuesday being somewhere with normal people, they could see that actually we have it a hundred percent wrong what we're doing. And we need to rethink our approach to what we make, how we make it, how we talk about it, all of it really from adding things to life to subtraction basically. Um, so that's maybe an example of just describe for long enough until it sort of snaps into place and you can see our fundamental language, opinions, assumptions about this might not be completely right. And in this case, completely wrong. Is it possible to do this without having the ability to be in the, in the house, right? In this example. And what I mean is, and you talked about this, right? If executives are unable to see the person drive their car, are they able to observe at this level? Because this could go across anybody. It could go across trying to grow a podcast without being able to literally observe how people are consuming podcasts. Yeah, you, you have to do that. You have to get out of your office okay. um, yeah. and, and, and be in the world. Um, it's not easy, right? Because you have to go and do it and, and kind of be hidden in plain sight uh, as you do it. But... Um, I tell you, it's enriching. Um, you know, I had I had a student who had very very strong opinions opinions about homelessness, for instance, and he was working in a in a government agency, and he was um, he was quite negative. Um, and we he then went, you know, bless him, he went for nights and walked around New York uh, to understand what's it like to not know where to sleep tonight. And he found that even saying sleeping is ridiculous because of the light, the smell, and the sound of the situation people are in when they live like that and how dangerous it is. So by looking at that, he understood that you need a lot of light when you sleep on the street. The place smells like death. It has like a very clear sort of tooth decay kind of smell, which is terrifying. And, um, and the sounds are enormously booming at night because of all the construction work and trash, you know, work and so on. So suddenly he got into this whole other relationship to what homelessness is, and he could then start advising on other types of policies towards homelessness. So he, get, he got suddenly a relationship to homelessness that was real. It wasn't, it wasn't pretty, it wasn't nice in that sense, but it was deep. And, and, and it was real. So even, you know, he just walked, you know, four or five nights and talked to people and presented himself and had a, you know, a, a relationship to, to these people that gave him um, like a lot of, like a lot of texture, you could say, in terms of what it might be like to be someone else. Is that the full picture? Of course not. But, it, but, it, but it's better than not doing it. And in this case, it's almost, if you have a little bit of an innovative mind or a commercial mind, it's impossible not to get ideas from that. It's impossible not to start thinking, how could I serve these people better? Or how could I make something better? You mentioned something in your book and all of this is coming together. Um, you say, understanding the social context of our world is the most important path you can take to arrive at meaningful insights. Tell me a little bit about that, because as I was listening to that story, this social context, homelessness is one of those exact examples. So tell us about how we can understand that to arrive at insights. Right. There are a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about social affairs and people that have never been a teacher have a lot of opinions about teaching. And people that never run a hospital have a lot of opinions about hospitals are being run or should be run. 
And there are a lot of hospital managers that have very little understanding of what it's like to be a nurse or a cancer patient. So by using these techniques, you can try to do that. You can try to get closer to the context of the people that are involved rather than assuming all sorts of things about it. And I've had hospital administrators look at what it's like for a family to go from not knowing that dad has cancer to the father's gone. And that whole process gives you an understanding of how a, how a system, a hospital system can support in a, in a meaningful, helpful way and when it can't. So you gotta go and do the, sometimes unpleasant and sometimes cumbersome and sometimes um, you know, heavy uh, work of direct observation of whatever phenomenon you're dealing with. And that gives you context. And within that context, information like other types of studies, other kinds of science suddenly gives you um, texture. And you can understand, it's not just 72% feels this or that. It is, why is this data showing up in this way, right? So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that, it's a, it's a practice that get, gives you context of the people you're working with or want to work for that makes it much easier to process other types of data and that undermines your assumptions because they might be wrong. I was just thinking about where I would want to leverage this. And of course, one is professional world, one is interest, but a big one for me is the people I care most about. And as we started off talking about, you know, you have children and how can we leverage this in our personal relationships to do the thing that I think is most beneficial for others, which is to see them and understand them in a way that is not just through our lens and through our ego and through our selfishness. Right. Well, you offer people your time and attention. Um, so let's say it's your kid's school. I, I sometimes get furious over something with my kid's school, but I don't allow me to be furious before I've had a look. So then I ask, can I come and sit in the hallway for two hours and just see kids and students and things being moved around going by? And can I be in a class? I won't say a thing. I'm just looking. Um, and it gives me an understanding of why it is I'm furious. And I might get even more furious because of it, or I might get less. But I at least I offer my attention to the things that rub me the wrong way or I'm confused about or we disagree about. Um, in some way or another. I think we, we owe that to each other. Um, I think the people on the right in America owes, the people in the, in, on the coasts owes, owes it to the people in the center to observe a little bit instead of having so many, many opinions. And I think the left owes it to the right to, to do that. I think the right owes it to the left <laughs> to do that. And I, I I, th I think we owe it to each other that we will take time out to observe um, each other in order to see if we can iron out differences. And it seems like we're moving in the wrong direction in that sense. We get more and more furious about each other and listen less and less. And I think we ought to, we ought, we, we ought to offer our attention for a little while uh, before we start being so furious about everything. So, so, so it's not just your people in your life. It's also sort of politically, um, uh, in terms of all the conflicts we have. I think a lot could be solved by just looking instead of thinking and um, pontificating. Looking instead of thinking. Yeah. There you go. I mean, if you had to explain, at least from me, if I had to explain in one phrase, what is this about? It's that. It's put a little bit more emphasis on what you see as opposed to what you think and what you think you see. Exactly. There's a, there's a, a story, I don't know if it's true, but there's a story that Ludwig Wittgenstein, who, who's at least a candidate to being the most important philosopher in the 20th century, the Austrian uh, philosopher. And apparently in the last note, in his last notebook before he died, was the last sentence was, look, comma, don't think. So if he boiled down his entire philosophy that was about embodied um, experience, about how 
uh, humans make sense of language, it is that. It is start by looking, and then you can think all you like afterwards, but start by looking. One of the last things I want to mention is how we can do this with people who are complex, who will do things and say things that seem to counteract. You mentioned the left and the right. I think there's a lot going on there. You talk about the best observers take note of what people say, but they don't put great stake in it. How do we observe better without listening exactly? Right. Well, there's a reason why people say what they say. And I'm more interested in that reason than in what the act, what they actually say. So there's a lot of, you know, in the world of corporations, there's a lot of market research where people are asked, you know, do you like this or that? And they say they like the red one. But if you follow that, you end up making the red one. And that might not be what they meant in that point. So there's a lot of emphasis on, but he said that. Um, well, he might not have meant it. So, so it's more that you, that you in that hyper-reflection type of observation, I'm saying is, how does that statement fit into how this person makes sense of the world? Um, so rather than, than taking the individual uh, statements of someone, saying that is a part of a data set that explains how that person makes sense of the world and maybe we need to make it green or maybe he meant something else um so it is it is listening to structure to the structure of meaning rather than to the individual soundbite um and that is hyper reflection the structure of meaning instead of a soundbite how do we do that and here's why i ask i've always been fascinated by this idea of People say they want the red one, but they really want the green one. I think people know the, the story about Steve Jobs used to do that a lot. But I don't know how you can possibly do that. Like, I don't know how I can hear you say one thing and know you mean the other without putting so much opinion on it, which is what we're advocating against. Right. I mean, I had a conflict with my daughter yesterday and she said, I don't like this dress. Um, I said, but we just got this dress. What are you talking about? I don't like this dress. Said, but two days ago, you liked it. I said, yeah, I don't like it. And then after having gone through three different dresses that she didn't like for going out somewhere, it turned out it's because she didn't want to go out. It had nothing to do with the dress. And had, had I taken the statement, like, let's get a different one, you know, and we ended up in this whole conflict about which dress when it had nothing to do with dresses. So there's sort of, some people call that deep listening, you know, um, which is, which is li listening to the world that somebody else is in and what that world looks like, rather than taking whatever is available right in front of you and just taking, grabbing onto that and then fighting over that. So it is, how does something make sense to someone else rather than what are they saying in this moment right now? Um, that, that's, that's helpful in coaching. I think you do some coaching, uh, I'm sure. Uh, it's helpful in leadership. It's helpful just in um, personal relationships. That, that the fundamental attitude to observing is one of how does the world show up to this other person or this group of people as meaningful? What is meaningful? What's not meaningful? How does it all work? If you if you have that attitude, you end up not fighting over dresses, but figuring out why is it you don't want to, why is it you don't want to go? And that is it is a hard skill, and I think it also requires it, it can't be done quickly or flippantly, you know, because you just won't get for a lot of reasons you won't get enough data even. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I think about, about of it as an attention gym, right? That, that you go to the gym and you can run fast or shoot basketballs well or something like that. But attention also requires discipline. And it requires that you practice. And it's something you have to do every day, just like you need to move every day. And we, we all know how to do it, but we're not all good at it. And I think you become good at it by practicing ongoing. And the beginning is find a phenomena that deeply interests you. 
and two, describe. Just describe. For long enough until you have, you feel a data set where you can start seeing patterns. And once you start seeing patterns, you can start concluding a little more strongly. But that that's a, like a gym. And I think it's necessary. It makes people feel better. It makes people more effective, connected to the world in a different way. Misunderstand each other less. Um, it's a good thing to do. If you were to have to boil down this skill into, say, three specific behaviors, what would you recommend if somebody wanted to observe better? Um, pick a phenomenon, keep it in front of you. Be sure you have it when you when you look that you still if you if you're looking at being seen at a jazz club, you f you make sure that you have that phenomenon in front of you when you look. Two, arrest your um, arrest your judgment. Make sure that it creeps up on you constantly on us all the time, but make sure that you ca ca catch it when it happens and put it aside. And three, describe what you see, what you actually see, what you actually see, not what you think you see, not what you want to see, but what you actually see. Um, I have a, uh, I, I mean, my favorite book in the world is called The Peregrine, and I have a whole chapter about it in the book. And he observes peregrine falcons, the bird, in, and he wants to, he uses it as a way to understand the place he lives. Um, and he's the most masterful poet you could say a, a best at the best observer i've ever seen um that's why i read the book every year i just love it um but it's the best observation of something because he becomes the place he be you know when you read the book he becomes a bird in the sense that he's so immersed in the observation of this bird that it he ends up saying we when it stoops um and and it's a it's a description of of a, a kind of obsession but I think observation hinges on, on a level of obsession that I think the best executives in the auto industry are obsessed about how people relate to their vehicles. I think the best um, people that relate to money have a, a, an obsession about how money works and how this whole thing plays out. So there's a level of, of obsession involved um, that, um, or that, that can be involved that can drive enormous insight. Um, so I, I'd say obsession might might be a, a fourth uh, out of your three. That keeping the phenomenon in front of you in a way where you go deeper and deeper and deeper in understanding how something works. You know, as you were saying that, there's few things in my life I feel like I've been obsessed about. But one, and it just feels like I, I, I didn't choose it, is sports. And just ever since I can remember, I love the feeling of it, right? The, the internal state of it. My primary sport was baseball. And I stopped watching baseball, even though I still play softball and stuff. I, I stopped watching baseball about a, a decade or so ago. And I was just with some friends and they had a game on and we were watching. And about halfway through, they're laughing at me. And I said, what? And they said, you haven't shut up the entire game. <laughs> because to your point, the obsession of observation, I mean, I know like so intricately every play and every body movement, every factor involved that I was observing it at that level. And that's what you reminded me about right there mm. and why you can observe in that way uh, when you are obsessed because you want to understand how it all works. I mean, I know now I'm just going off on a tangent, but I, I love this for this fact. I was playing golf with my dad the other day. We, uh, we hadn't played in six months because I had back surgery and I played one of the best rounds ever. And he said, Chris, I've been watching you play golf for about 20 years and you've never had this ball flight. What happened? I said, I changed my grip. And he said, why? I said, I went to a, a PGA tournament a couple of weeks ago and I just watched every one of them hit and i noticed that when they made when the club hit the ball it was pressed forward a little bit it was so square and the way it came off and then i thought about how did they do that i looked at it in comparison to the way i hit driver and that was it and we played five times since then and i've 
they've been some of the best rounds of my life. So anyways, that is, I am now interpreting what you're talking about through my phenomenon. Yeah. Anyway. Which is an embodied experience, right? Don't you feel closer to golf? Yeah, 100%. Exactly. Yeah. That's such a, it's so cool. And I say this, people might be listening going, Chris, I really don't give a shit. And that's fine. But it's to help maybe put some context around where this can be in your life. Maybe you just had your aha about what your obsession is and your observation and going deeper there and maybe leveraging that skill elsewhere, places that you want to improve at or, or, or dig into yeah. maybe. And a different example, if you, if you very, if you care a lot about climate change, mm -hmm. then take the time to figure out how people relate to nature. Like what, what does nature mean to people and observe it? Don't judge, just observe how people interact with nature, how people relate to outdoor, the outdoors, how some people have a very abstract relationship to nature. So climate change is about, about a graph issued by the UN. And for other people, it's about fixing the waterways down the street. But all of them are relationships to nature. So the phenomenon is human relationship to nature. If you obsess over that then uh, and, and, and look at it, wherever you go, you end up having a much better understanding of how we do something about climate change and how people's behavior around nature can be a way to inspire and to do stuff. So, so, so that, that's what I mean. Obsession can be, if you care about climate change, to study how people relate to nature on an ongoing basis. And it will make you connect to them in a different way and understand them much better. It's funny you say that. I mean, I'll plug it here and, and I'll tell you just because you, you might enjoy it. I created a new podcast. It's called The Week on Earth. And uh, I created it with my brother who's who's brilliant. And we just wrapped up the first season a couple of months ago. But in it, we try to do that. So the first episode is about toilet paper. But we we interview somebody who talks about the boreal forest, whereas, which is where most of the toilet paper comes from. And then this woman amazing storyteller talks about, you know, the animal species that call the boreal forest home and what happens to them when we, you know, clear cut it for this. And you can kind of like, if that relates to you, it will grab you or mail trucks. There's this big push for electric mail trucks. So in your neighborhood, when your kids are riding a bike, if they smell exhaust fumes, do they have to, because it could have been an electric mail truck if we would just dedicate some money there. So I think it goes into what you're talking about. It just gets me more excited about it. Yeah, sounds like sounds like you're doing it. Yeah, and it's fun. Well, Christian, I, I love this. And I want to point out that the book, one of the things I really like about it is, and you did it on the podcast, the storytelling, the way in which you tell stories that enable us to understand this idea of observation is really interesting in leveraging the philosophers of old and where this comes from. I just, I want to highlight that for those listening because it's not just a informational book. It's a, uh, it is actually enjoyable to read, which can be difficult sometimes for these. So the book is called look how to pay attention in a distracted world. Christian, where else can you point those listening? I, I have a website, which is my surname, M A D S B J E R G dot com and i'm not very active on social media um i have a linkedin page where you can find me but in general i i don't do much of that so the book is a is a place to start maybe why don't you do a lot of social media it bores me yeah it's just it's just dreadfully boring yeah it's not observational really either you you get all you get is the things that are said you don't get the context which is what you specifically seek out, I would imagine. I think I, I could get engaged in social media, in observational work on social media, if I wanted to understand what friendship is and how it's changed and human connection. Uh, I, I would be interested in that. But just the activity of seeing other people's opinions, I, I, don't, find, I don't find that exciting. I'm with you on that. So I don't blame you. Well, again, Christian... Thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Really appreciate you being on the yeah, show. How adorable was this? Thank you. That was great. Yeah. And hopefully it won't be another 10 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's all. <laughs> 
A huge congratulations to Chris and his wife, Heather, as they welcomed their third boy last week. A thank you to this week's guest, Christian Madsberg. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Christian's book, Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World, is available wherever books are sold. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And no, I'm not calling it X. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we'll see you all next episode.